If you had to pick the soundtrack for Heaven, the music of Sir John Tavener would probably feature prominently. So says musician and critic Aidan Goldstraw. We listen to a short excerpt there of the very beginning of Tavener's piece, The Protecting Veil, with Stephen Isserlis on cello and a very famous recording that we'll come back to a little bit later in the show. Welcome to Relevant Tones. My name is Seth Bostead, and today is the second in a three-part series on mystical minimalism. We're listening to three composers associated with this style. Last week, we heard the music of Estonian composer Arvo Pärt. This week is the music of British composer Sir John Tavener, and next week will be the music of Polish composer Henryk Goretzky. What uh, is common in the music of all three of these composers is a very sparseness in musical texture and also a sparsity in musical materials. Very little happens in these pieces. There's not a lot of development. It's often diatonic. It stays in the same key. And most importantly, it's incredibly infused with this sense of spirituality. In the case of Tavener, the spirituality was always present in his life, although it would take many different forms. Tavener was born into a musical household and showed musical promise at an early age. His father was the organist at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, and so sacred music would have been probably the first music that he heard that he was exposed to. And it becomes a hallmark of his musical style, although it does take a number of years to fully manifest itself. Tavener studied at the Royal Academy of Music, where he heard the music of Stravinsky and Messiaen, and was especially influenced by Stravinsky's Canticum Sacrum. This is a pretty late work for Stravinsky. It's long after the neoclassicism, and uh, certainly after the, the primitivism of his Rite of Spring and Firebird Suites. Let's have a listen to the Canticum Sacrum, a piece that Tavener himself says fully opened his mind to the possibilities of sacred music. As you can hear, that music is very different than the Tavener that we heard in the beginning. And I don't think it was the musical influence that um, so affected Tavener. It was more the fact that a composer of Stravinsky's fame, and at this point in his career, Stravinsky was as famous as a composer can possibly be, uh, that a composer of Stravinsky's fame would be inspired, one, by sacred music, and two, that he could do such a beautiful job of setting it for the concert hall. And I feel like it's, it's sort of a, a permission slip, if you will, to, to do the same thing himself. Tavener at this point is in his... Late teens, early 20s, uh, he's, he's not quite sure what he wants to do. He's heard sacred music all of his life. He knows he wants to be a composer. 
And hearing what Stravinsky did with the sacred music, with a chant that Tavner may very well have known, how he said it and uh, added the trombone and the brass and, and the different instruments, uh, I think was, was hugely influential for Tavner and, again, provided him with an, an outlet for what he wanted to do himself. But it took him a while to actually get there. Uh, a couple years later, he has a big hit with a piece called The Whale, taken from the Jonah and the Whale story in the Bible, which is, of course, not one of the more spiritual stories in the Bible. It's almost a, a secular tale. And so he has not quite moved um, to, uh, to where he'll be in the future, where, where almost everything he writes is, is uh, infused with this intense spirituality. But it is a biblical theme. Um, it is a religious theme. And uh, the, the piece is, is uh, quite interesting. At this point, we're, we're in the late 60s, and avant-garde techniques are all the rage. And so Tavner uses tape loops to get this kind of drone sound, um, this oscillating drone sound. He's, uh, he's using a narrator, and the text is from the Bible, but he's also using encyclopedia entries about the whale. Um, he takes frequent side trips, and he'll, he'll discuss the whale's dorsal fin and, and its bone structure and all sorts of things like that along the way. Let's have a listen to an excerpt of The Whale. The Whale, marine mammal of the order Cetacea. They comprise three groups. One, Archaeocetae, believed to have been derived from the Credonta, the primitive fossil members of the carnivora. Their teeth consist of three incisors, one canine, four premolars, and three to two molars on either side of each jaw. A milk dentition is found. Two, mystacocetae, or whalebone whales, in which the mouth contains fine plate-like structures supported by the palate in place of teeth. And three, odontocetae, or toothed whales, believed to have descended from the archaeocetae, which includes sperm whales, dolphins, and porpoises. The most prized species is the blue whale, the largest of all animals, which is found chiefly in the Antarctic Ocean. It reaches a length of 100 feet and a weight of at least 120 tons. Whales are migrant animals, the movements of which are conditioned by surface temperatures and by their search for food. Blue, fin, and humpback whales enter the Antarctic in summer and feed on vast shoals of southern krill, an oceanic shrimp some two and a half inches long, which feeds on single-celled plants called phytoplankton. In winter, they frequent the warmer latitudes to breed. The sperm whale is the largest toothed whale. It attains a length of 60 feet, but the male is much larger than the female and is polygamous. Finn and humpback whales may reach lengths of 65 and 50 feet respectively. Whales are warm-blooded, breathe air, and have lungs. The skin is naked, but they conserve their body heat by immense layers of blubber, from which enormous quantities of whale oil are produced. The bulk of this oil is processed into margarine, but there are many useful byproducts, for example, frozen whale meat, meat meal, meat extracts, bone meal, liver oil, and vitamin extracts. Whales bear their young like lamb hounds. The breeding of whalebone whales takes place in low latitudes in winter, and pregnancy lasts for about a year. Only one calf is born, and this is nursed for about seven months, after which the pair rests until the next breeding season. Statistics on the whaling industry are compiled annually by the Norwegian Committee for Whaling Statistics. After World War II, the International Whaling Commission was formed, and most governments whose nationals engage in whaling are members of it. The major field for whaling is the Antarctic, and here only a certain number of whales is permitted to be caught in any season. There are, however, also comprehensive regulations for whaling in all parts of the world. A recent development in the industry is whale marching. 
That is an excerpt of The Whale by John Tavener, performed for us by the London Sinfonietta and London Sinfonietta Chorus. I want to just listen to the opening of The Whale one more time. The first thing that we hear after the uh, the narrator's voice, of course, is the tape itself, and it's a series of whirring oscillations, like a woo-woo-woo-woo sound, <laughs> like that. And this would become huge in his style uh, because it's also like a drone pattern, and the drone pattern is very popular in indigenous music, in a lot of Indian music, um, a lot of other cultures. And um, not too many years after writing The Whale, Tavner will become increasingly interested in these other cultures. But here, even before this exploration, he's already doing that. Blue, fin, and humpback whales enter the Antarctic in summer and feed on vast trolls of southern krill, an oceanic shrimp some two and a half inches long, which feeds on single-celled plants called phytoplankton. In winter, they frequent the warmer latitudes... Sounds like that were in the air. Uh, the Whale was premiered on the Apple label in 1969, and so uh, this is exactly the, the height of the, uh, the trippy psychedelic movement in rock and roll. And so it's no wonder that uh, this piece was such a huge hit. The piece is nothing if not <laughs> mildly psychedelic in its uh, sounds. And uh, it's a funny story about how the piece became famous. John Tavener's brother, Roger Tavener, 
was a, a carpenter, and he was working on the house of Ringo Starr, uh, specifically working on his roof. And I try to imagine the scene in my head, but uh, he's, he's taking a break in my mind, and he's having a glass of water, and, and uh, Ringo comes over, and they, they start chatting. And Roger says, oh, hey, Ringo, by the way, did you know my brother's a composer? <laughs> and uh, Ringo is interested, and they start talking, and uh, he actually plays the music for him. Ringo loves it. He loves his piece, The Whale. He brings it to John Lennon, who also loves it. Uh, they all have dinner, John Tavner, Yoko Ono, John Lennon, and they decide to record the piece on the Beatles' Apple label. They do. It becomes a huge worldwide hit, uh, a big smash hit for Tavner. Tavner goes on in a couple years to write The Celtic Requiem, which is also recorded on the Apple label. Not quite as big a hit as The Whale, um, but a very similar piece in many ways. And so the career of John Tavner is launched on a, uh, a psychedelic platform, if you will, with a biblical story at the basis, but still a long cry from the spiritual works that we'll get to in the near future. About a year after the Celtic Requiem, Tavner wrote Little Requiem for Father Malachi Lynch, and I'd like to take a listen to just a little bit of it to give you a sense of, of where he's going. This is another step along the, the path towards the, the uh, almost absolute spirituality that, that he's heading towards. You will still hear the drone patterns a little bit, although it's not a tape anymore. It's the instruments producing these long and sustained tones underneath the voices. But the text now is a sacred text. Uh, there's, there's no whimsy. There's no encyclopedia entries or anything. The text is from the Roman Catholic Requiem Mass. Let's just give a quick listen.
Just a little taste of The Little Requiem for Father Malachi Lynch by John Tavner, performed for us by the English Chamber Orchestra and Westminster Abbey Choir, with Martin Neary conducting. This piece shows that Tavner is, uh, is, is moving away a little bit. I don't think that the Beatles would have, would have recorded this on their Apple label. It's a much different piece. And so even though he's so famous, he's, he's really achieved a, a kind of worldwide fame at this point, it's clear that fame is not what he's interested in. He's really looking for something much deeper. And he's also becoming increasingly dissatisfied with his Roman Catholic upbringing. And this builds to a crisis in the next couple of years as he tries to set an opera on the life of St. Teresa, and it would just be called Teresa. And he had an Irish librettist, also a Roman Catholic, also disillusioned uh, at that time with his faith. And for three years, Tavner struggled on this piece. And this is something new for him. He's always composed very, very quickly. Uh, but he had the hardest time with this. And there, there are stories that he, that he fought with his librettist, even, according to one story, coming to blows <laughs> at, at one point. And I think he just had, he had the most difficult time figuring out the direction that, uh, that this piece should take as he tries to celebrate the life of a saint at the same time as he himself is, is losing his faith. When the piece was finished, it was a commercial success, but it was dismissed by the critics. And that phrase is exactly what three or four different stories say, dismissed by the critics summarily, one gets the impression. From about 1974 till about 1977, he's completely unable to write. Uh, He's totally paralyzed by this spiritual crisis. If religion is what moved him musically, and now he doesn't understand what religion he is, then he's unable to write. (laughs) The the two are, are inextricably linked in his mind. Then in 1977, he gains admittance to the Russian Orthodox Church, and this is a huge, huge thing for him. He, he calls it a homecoming, and all of a sudden now he is uh, really infused with Eastern spirituality. He decides that the, West, the Western world is decadent and not worth his time. The only thing worthwhile is in the East. And so now he immerses himself in other territories. He starts to listen to, uh, to Byzantine music, the Byzantine tonal system. He listens to, to Asian music. He listens to traditional Indian music, especially anything that has to do with chant aspects or this drone. One of his biggest influences at this time was a performing group called the Dagar Brothers, who did a lot of Indian classical and devotional repertoire, and they did a ton of stuff featuring this drone bass. Let's have a listen to just a taste of what the Dagar brothers were doing and what was so influential to Tavner at this key moment in his life. playing music from the Indian devotional repertoire, a huge influence on composer John Tavener at this time. And I can't help but point out that his old friends, the Beatles, were also seeking inspiration uh, in the same place at the same time.
whereas the Beatles were seeking to reinvent rock and roll, Tavner was uh, inspired by Indian music for spiritual purposes. Tevner has found his, his uh, biggest influence now, this well from which he will derive so much music. Uh, but it takes a little while to, um, to sink in. The first several pieces that he writes using the Byzantine tonal system or using the Russian Orthodox tradition are actually not embraced by uh, other Russian Orthodox people in his country. And uh, he's sort of considered an upstart. <laughs> who is this young guy who was on the, the Beatles' Apple album, and now he claims to be a Russian Orthodox guy, and he's writing this piece and using our, our texts, our sacred texts. And it, it took a little while for him to, uh, to, to gain the cachet that he needed and for them to, uh, to trust him and think that he was uh, legit in, in, his, uh, in his devotion. What helped him get past this was meeting a, a woman named Mother Thecla, who was uh, an abbess in a uh, Orthodox monastery, and she becomes his librettist and in very many ways his religious muse. His own mother had just died the year before he met her. Um, he's never been able to work with a librettist before, but she knows the Orthodox tradition inside and out. She knows all the sacred texts, and she becomes huge. She writes the text for a piece called Akathist of Thanksgiving. This piece is very important for Tavner. One, it marks the end of his writer's block, and two, the piece is, is the first piece that he refers to as having been written completely without ego. He claims that it appeared fully formed in his mind, which is very interesting, of course, because in ancient religious music, it all comes down to us as anonymous. It was not important to record the name of the composer. It was music meant to celebrate God. And so here's Tavner writing very much in that vein and saying that, that this piece, he didn't write it. Um, God sort of dictated it to him. Let's have a listen to a movement of the Akathist of Thanksgiving, the first piece to bring Tavner out of his creative doldrums.
The Akathist of Thanksgiving, performed for us by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, Westminster Abbey Choir, and BBC Singers, Martin Neary conducting. That piece, Akathist of Thanksgiving, it's a completely different style for Tavner. You can really hear the Russian influences. He's using these eastern scales with the half steps at the very front end of the scale. It's a minor sound, but a different minor than we use here in the West. And uh, the singing style, the, the ornaments on the melody, the way that the style is uh, chant, absolutely, but it's Eastern chant. This is not chant in the Roman Catholic tradition. You're listening to Relevant Tones on WFMT, a show that explores the sound world of contemporary composers. If you like what you hear, send us an email at info at relevanttones.com or check out our Facebook page. From this moment on, despite numerous health problems, Tavner would be prolific all the way up until the late 90s. Uh, He would write one piece after another in this new style and meet with more and more success along the way. Uh, Unfortunately, his health problems were rather severe. He had a stroke in his 30s, a couple of heart attacks in his 40s, one of which he was actually pronounced dead on the table, um, but they they were able to resuscitate him. His brother, Roger, who also suffered from Marwin syndrome, and as you may recall, jump-started his career with Ringo Starr, died of a heart attack around this time. So there are numerous health setbacks and uh, emotional setbacks but this only strengthens his, his resolve to explore this, this Eastern spirituality, and it only strengthens the, what can only be described as the spiritual luminosity, uh, increasingly, of his music. He has a couple of big hits around this time. Uh, he sets some poems by William Blake, The Lamb, The Tiger. But what really brings him back to international attention is uh, not a vocal piece, oddly enough. It is a piece for cello and orchestra, the piece that we open the program with, The Protecting Veil. And uh, also at this time, he meets the cellist, Stephen Isserlis, who becomes a huge interpreter of his music and a very important collaborator. This piece is too important to only listen to the little bit that we heard in the beginning, and so I'd like to return now and listen to another movement of The Protecting Veil with Stephen Isserlis on cello.
This recording of the Protecting Veil with Stephen Isserlis on cello, uh, playing with the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Jenedy Rajdevensky, became extremely famous. It was at the top of the classical charts for months and months and months. Uh, this is one of his biggest hits of all, and uh, it's easy to see, I think, why this this spiritual connection was uh, hugely important at this time in the in the eighties for people. Also at this time, Tavner would find his other great interpreter, and then a soprano, Patricia Rosario. Born in India, she was intimately familiar with both the Eastern and Western classical music traditions, so she was able to to sing all Western phrasings. She had an amazing range, well over two octaves, uh, but she also knew how to ornament the melodies in the Eastern style that Tavner was becoming increasingly taken with, and so she became a, a, a perfect collaborator for him. And I'd like to listen to an example of this. So far, we've only heard choral music, and it would be nice to hear a, a single vocalist so you can really hear what she's doing with the melody. The text for the Akhmatova songs are by poet Anna Akhmatova, and again, they are taken from the Akhmatova Requiem. Let's listen to the Van Brew Quartet accompany Patricia Rosario as she sings two of the Akhmatova songs of John Tavner.
Two of the Akmatava songs by John Tavner, performed for us by soprano Patricia Rosario, a longstanding collaborator of Tavner's, and the Van Brew Quartet. A perfect example of this Eastern influence on his, his music. Tavner would probably reach the height of his fame in 1997 with the song for Athene because it was performed at the funeral services for Lady Diana. So you have, I don't even know how many millions of people watching as this piece is performed, and uh, the recordings have sold numerous, numerous copies, of course. Um, I was on YouTube, and, and the, the, the hits for, for each posting of this piece are, are astronomical. It, it remains one of his most uh, popular works, and a perfect example of this connection that he made with so many people through this spirituality. Uh, again, this uh, mystical minimalism that we've been exploring over the last couple of weeks did not happen in a vacuum by any means. In fact, all three of the composers we're featuring on this series are hugely popular. They all tapped in to a latent spirituality, if you will, in people. And I find it very interesting that in the latter half of the 20th century, when most of this is happening, uh, a century by most considered to be a time of great technological innovation and often considered to be nearly godless or a time uh, that, that people are deserting spirituality, it, it seems that uh, in classical music, at least, the, the exact opposite is true. Let's have a listen to this piece, the Song for Athene, composed for the funeral of Lady Diana.
the beautiful ethereal Song for Athene by John Tavener, performed for us by the Westminster Abbey Choir with Martin Neary conducting. A piece that was composed for the funeral of Lady Diana and a recording that would go on to sell innumerable copies and firmly establish Tavener's reputation as a, a composer of spiritual music absolutely unparalleled. I'd like to feature one more piece by Tavner uh, called his Prayer of the Heart from 2004. And uh, this one's interesting because it was actually written for the Icelandic singer Björk and is performed by her in the recording that we have. I think it fits her her vocal stylings very well. It's vintage Tavner, the the long sustained tones, uh, the slight hint of of Eastern tonality and um, and her, her very beautiful lyrical voice rising over the top of it. Let's have a listen to an excerpt of Björk singing Prayer of the Heart. short excerpt of Bjork singing Prayer of the Heart. Relevant Tones has been co-produced by Jesse McCorders at WFMT in Chicago and me, Seth Bostead, Executive Director of Access Contemporary Music. Today's program is made possible with support from Chicago-based Access Contemporary Music online at acmusic.org. Steve Robinson is the Executive Producer. Again, I'm Seth Bostead, and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>